Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, please. Romans 6. If you're using a pew Bible, page 1130. Really missed being with all of you the last few weeks, being in Japan. It was good to be among the believers there and just experience the fellowship that is a reality because of a common Savior and our place in a common body of Christ. But I did miss you very much. I also missed not being able to speak a language that people could readily understand. <laughs> and they speaking a language that I couldn't readily understand. The curse of the Tower of Babel, I'm here to report, is alive and well. I appreciate Jim Wine and, and Vince and uh, Dan Hubiar filling in for me in the pulpit while I was gone. But I am very, very glad to be back here and beginning this extremely significant section in the book of Romans. Wow, this is going to be good. We are, we are turning a corner here and we are moving into some really good stuff. Not that what's gone before hasn't been really good. But uh, now we're beginning to sort of to apply the tremendous theology that we have been learning over the last year and a half. You know, when my kids were young, it was our practice to read to them, read out loud to them on a pretty regular basis. We kind of gather them together and uh, and I was the designated reader and uh, I read many of the children's classics uh, to my kids and I. Usually they could convince me to uh, read to them using different voices, which always made it amusing. And I've, uh, I would create my own voices for each character. And, of course, sometimes I couldn't remember which character had which voice, but that's okay. They enjoyed that. But, you know, if we were reading a story together and then something came up so that a number of days had gone by when we were unable to read... The next time we got back together to read, we would have to back up a little bit and review in order to catch up on the story of where we were going so that when we went forward, everybody could remember what it was all about. And so I just want to do that with you for a couple of minutes this morning as we begin in chapter six. I just want to back up a moment or two and review that which has gone before us so that we understand where Paul's going here in Romans chapter six. So just quickly for you as a review, just turn back a couple of pages and and hopefully this will be familiar enough. Romans 1, beginning in verse 1, and then running through verse 17 is Paul's greeting and introduction here to the church at Rome. You remember I told you Paul had never visited this church. In fact, uh, we believe that no apostle had visited this church, that this church had, uh, had formed uh, and uh, uh, come together coming out of Pentecost and now was there in Rome, actually a series of house churches most probably, there in Rome, but it was a church without apostolic oversight because it was a Gentile church and because it was a church that was not planted by any apostle. Paul himself could exercise his apostolic authority over this church. And so he's writing to introduce himself to them and to say, hey, I'm coming to see you. And before I get there, there's some important things you need to know. And this is what we call Paul's letter to the church at Rome or the epistle to the Romans. So the beginning there is just his introduction of himself and kind of an outline of the topics that he's going to cover in the letter. Then he begins where we have to begin in these matters, and that is beginning in verse 18 and running all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. Paul begins with the message of condemnation. This is not a popular message. Believe me, it wasn't any more popular then than it is today. Nobody wants to be told how bad off they really are. But unless we understand the depth of our depravity, unless we understand that sin is not just some small matter on the side, but is actually woven into the very fabric of who we are, that, that is that we are fallen creatures. We are depraved. We are wicked in the very innermost of our being. Heart, soul, mind, body, it is all corrupt. Unless we understand that, and appreciate the depth of that, then we will not understand nor appreciate the slaughtering of God's own Son. It's actually incomprehensible if you think about that. Unless sin is really as bad as the Bible makes it out to be, it is incomprehensible 
that God would come take on human flesh and die in our place. The only thing that makes any sense of it is to understand how bad off we really are. And so Paul has a very lengthy treatment of condemnation. And you and I were both tired by the time we had worked our way through that. We slithered out under the back door many a Sunday morning. But that's okay. Because we turned then to justification. And that began in verse 21 of chapter 3, where Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. And so he introduces here the doctrine of justification. Justification. That is that we have been acquitted by God. We have been judged guilty and then acquitted by God because Christ bore our penalty. Our guilt was imputed or transferred to him, and he on that cross bore the penalty rightfully due us and gave to us his righteousness that we now stand in the eyes of our Creator justified, made right in Jesus Christ and acceptable before God and welcomed into the presence of our Holy Creator. That is the doctrine of justification. It is the doctrine which Luther said, sola fide, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, upon which the church of Jesus Christ stands or falls. If we lose that doctrine, we have lost the gospel and the church is not. So the doctrine of justification, we labored away on that. It runs all the way through chapter 5 and verse 21. And that's where we left off a month ago. A month ago, we finished chapter 5, verse 21. 21, we begin this morning, chapter 6, and chapter 6, running all the way through chapter 8, is Paul's treatment of the doctrine of sanctification. So we've had condemnation, justification, we will now look at sanctification. Sanctification is a big word, it it just means to be set apart from common use, to be made holy, to be holy, to be sanctified, to be set apart. In the life of a Christian, sanctification is a twofold reality. A twofold reality. There is, Im- there is an immediate event of sanctification that occurs at the moment of salvation. We are set apart. We are made holy in Jesus Christ. That happens at the moment of our conversion. And that's what enables the Apostle Paul to write, for example, to the church at Corinth a church which had all kinds of problems with sin and to call them saints, holy ones set apart by God. So there is an immediate event of sanctification that occurs in a Christian life, but there is an ongoing process of sanctification. And that's what Paul is going to be dealing with here in chapter 6. It is the ongoing process whereby the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to convict, to instruct to motivate and to empower his people to live holy lives. To become more and more, this is the secret, to become more and more and more like Jesus Christ. In fact, over in chapter 8, in this section here, Paul says that we have been predestined, verse 29, to become conformed to the image of His Son. That is, that we have been chosen by God before the beginning, for the foundation of the earth, to be made like Jesus Christ. We are going to be sanctified. We are going to become holy like Christ. Not in this life. Not all the way. But the process begins and continues throughout this life until at the end... God glorifies us in death. We are taken into the presence of Christ and the process of sanctification is completed. We are made fit to stand in the presence of a holy God. Okay? So that's what we're going to be looking at here over the next weeks and, I don't know, maybe months, who knows, until we get through this section. Okay? Is is that process by which we are made like Jesus Christ. Now, through the years, I have met uh, many believers who are kind of discouraged or defeated in their Christian lives. They are are discouraged or defeated with regard to the process of sanctification. Some because they have been subjected to bad teaching, which has has, uh, put on them this idea that in this life you can actually 
eliminate the pull of sin upon you. That sin will no longer trouble you. And they have, uh, they'll have leaders who will say that and will say that they've arrived at that level. The problem for these people that I've met is, is that they realize that they aren't there. And that they're not getting there. And so they're left with one of two options. One is to fake it. And after a while of faking it, they grow cynical about the whole process. Or they just walk away altogether and say, there's something wrong with me, it doesn't work. Others have gone about this process of sanctification or being made holy by putting fences around their lives. Man-made rules. The idea is if I put up enough barriers, enough man-made rules that say don't touch this and don't go there and don't do this and don't do that. If I put up enough fences around myself to keep temptation and sin away that I will become holy like Jesus Christ. The problem with that is that it fails to realize that corruption arises from where? Inside the fence. <laughs> you know, the minute you start building the fence, you've fenced the corruption in. Okay? Because it springs from the heart. It comes from the heart. It can't be walled off. And people realize that. And it grow, they grow discouraged in that kind of a system. Others grow discouraged because the, the pull of sin is so strong in their lives. Maybe one particular area where sin is just so strong and is pulling at them and, and defeating them so often that they, they begin to hunker down and pull back from the fellowship of believers. They, they shut down. They begin to even doubt some that they're saved at all, that they even know Christ in a saving way. And so they just descend into a spiral of defeat and discouragement. Beloved, we all struggle with sin. This is the reality. All of us struggle with sin. And I would dare say that all of us have particular areas where we struggle in a significant way. And where I struggle may not be where you struggle, but there is some place in your soul where there is a major war going on. A major war. And so the lessons in this chapter, chapter 6, are going to be huge. Okay, They're going to be huge for us. So this morning, as we begin to examine Romans chapter six, looking at verses one through 14, but not all the way this morning. We're going to introduce seven essential truths, seven essential truths that we must understand, we must believe and we must act upon. So that we can break the grip of sin in our lives. We're not promising the elimination of it. What we are promising is the breaking of its stranglehold upon you, upon me. And it's a process of understanding, believing, and then acting upon. This morning, we're going to be preaching mostly to the mind. We're going to begin with the understanding, okay? And there's a fundamental truth here that we have got to understand. And then we must embrace by faith and believe. And so I have the first truth for you there in your handout. That truth is that you have died to sin. You have died to sin. Those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone as your savior to to redeem you, to justify you before a holy God. If you have done that, then the Apostle Paul says you have died to sin. Verses one and two. What should we say then? Are we continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, Paul is transitioning here. Chapter six, I just told you that he's transitioning from the doctrine of justification, which he's finished in chapter five, to the doctrine of sanctification, beginning here in chapter six. But that doesn't mean that sanctification is any less dependent upon the crosswork of Jesus Christ than justification is. It is all dependent upon what Christ has done. We are not saved by grace and sanctified by struggle. Okay, we are saved by grace and we are sanctified by grace as well. And it has all been purchased by Christ for us on that cross. And you can see the closeness of these two doctrines as the way the, the two chapters are connected here. Chapter 6 begins with a question, what shall we say then? 
And that question flows right out of Paul's closing argument in chapter 5, verse 20, where he says, The law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded, or literally superabounded, all the more. So if grace superabounds where sin abounds, if multiplied transgressions lead to even greater displays of God's grace, then logically we might say, hmm, it would seem that the best thing to do would be to sin all the more, right? So that God's grace would abound all the more and he would receive all the more glory. Let's sin it up and let God receive the glory of forgiving it all. I think Paul's anticipating his Jewish audience. The church at Rome is a Gentile church, but there's a significant Jewish component. I think he's anticipating the Jewish response to the gospel of justification by grace through faith alone. And that is that they would say to him, Paul... If, if you say to people, if this is the teaching that you say it comes from God, and that is that when we sin, God just pours out more and more grace to overcome sin, then logically we should be sinning, 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 and grace, grace, grace. So Paul raises the question. He doesn't run from it. He raises it. Here it is. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Is that the logical inference of the doctrine of justification? Is that what it really means? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Continue in sin. Present tense verb here, the idea of a habitual, persistent, unbroken pattern of sin in our lives. Paul's not speaking about a believer's occasional falling into sin through weakness or through a momentary failure to practice self-control. But what he's talking about is an intentional, willful, sinning pattern established in one's life. And Paul says, is that what should characterize us? Should we intentionally, willfully, volitionally, and continually and habitually Sin, so that grace might increase. Look at verse 2. May it never be, he says. May it never be. May genita in the Greek. Idiomatically, no, 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 no. It's an abhorrent thought. This is the strongest expression in the New Testament Greek. The strongest expression of repudiation. It doesn't get any stronger than this. He's shouting at them. There's a sense of outrage in his answer. The very notion, the very idea that this thought could be true is abhorrent to the Apostle Paul. Absolutely abhorrent. And so he says, may it never be. And then rather than enter into a, into a sort of dispassionate, logical explanation of why that's true, he just comes right at them with a rhetorical question. Do you see it? There's an exclamation, Megenotomy, and never be rhetorical question, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? It's absurd. It's foolish. It's wicked. Simply put, it's impossible. It's impossible. It is impossible for one who knows Christ savingly to remain in a constant, habitual state of sin. Impossible. In fact, the Apostle John says in 1 John 3.9, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. It's impossible. It's abhorrent. It's wicked. It's not even to be given the time of day to entertain. Think of it this way. Pigs live in mud. Okay? Pigs live in a pigsty full of mud. And they like it. They like it there. They don't want to get out of the pigsty. They, it's their home. People fall in the mud. 
people don't live in the mud. A human being, when he falls into the pigsty, does what? He gets back up and out and cleanses himself. Okay? That's the difference. You see? A pig likes it there. A sinner likes it in sin. Those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, they fall into sin, but they don't remain there. They're not comfortable there. It's not their home any longer. That's what Paul's saying. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now this question is really fundamental to all that Paul is going to unveil for us in the balance of this chapter. This is huge. This is a very important theological statement. It's formed as a rhetorical question, but it's an important theological statement. And, and we need to take the time to really delve into it, okay? We who died, you notice that? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Paul, when he says uh, we who died, he uses an aorist tense verb. And, and he's just, by that, it just indicates there was a single action that has taken place in the past. Somewhere in the past, we died. And it's a completed action. Beyond that, grammatically here, the pronoun we, first person plural, we, is placed emphatically in the sentence, in the question. It's moved right up to the front. And what he's driving home here is he's saying, how shall we, Christians, who have died to sin, still live in it? Okay, he's driving this thing home. How is this possible? This is foundational. This is a foundational statement. The answer is it can't be. We who have died to sin cannot still live in it. But what does it mean to die to sin? What does it mean? Well, there are some common misnomers, so let's just begin by knocking off a few of those, okay? Let's just knock off a couple of things that you might have heard in your life that are not true with regard to what this means. First, and maybe this is perhaps one of the most popular and it's one of the most unfortunate, is that the Christian is no longer responsive to the pull of sin. We have died to sin and so we are no longer responsive to its allures, to its temptation, to its pull. And the, the, the reasoning behind this is one based on an argument from analogy. It's an argument from analogy. And it goes something like this. When a person dies and their body is dead, they are no longer susceptible to external stimuli, right? I mean, you can go up and, and you know, shake their hand or, you know, whatever. Yell at them, wake up. Nothing happens, right? They're dead. That no, no, nothing affects them. They're dead. And so arguing here by analogy, what what the teachers of this kind of doctrine would say is that the Christian who has died to sin is thus in the same way unresponsive to the stimuli of sin. They're dead. And so sin can happen all around them. Temptation can come to them all the time. But the true believer, they would say, neither feels it nor responds to it. You can already see why this kind of teaching is really dangerous, right? Well, first off, it doesn't square at all with what Paul says a little bit later. Look down at verse 11. Actually, 11, 12, 13, and beyond, where there are imperatives here where Paul says we're supposed to do something. We're supposed to consider yourself dead to sin. Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Verse 13, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. If you were immune to sin's temptation and pull, as a dead body is immune to physical stimuli, then there would be no need for these kinds of statements. Okay, so it it just contradicts the text. And that in and of itself is enough to throw it away. Beyond that, it contradicts reality. It contradicts reality. There is nobody who could live like this, who does live like this. Now, people may fake it. They may fake it. But it's not true. Stories told of uh, this young man who uh, came to see uh, Charles Spurgeon after he had finished preaching one Sunday morning. And as was wont to do, people would come into his office to talk to him about the sermon or other things. And uh, Spurgeon was sitting behind his desk. This young man came in and he sat down and he said, uh, Pastor Spurgeon, I have conquered anger in my life. He said, really? He said, yep. 
No more. I'm not affected by anger in any way, shape, or form. I completely conquered it. And Spurgeon said, really? He got up from behind his desk and he walked around to where the young man was sitting and he stomped on his foot. He goes, what did you do that for? And he said, well, have no more of this nonsense about conquering anger. Okay? I don't know if I could get away with that, but Spurgeon could get away with that. It's silly. It's silly, okay? But it is still being taught. And it leaves broken bodies in its wake. Secondly, another erroneous understanding of what Paul's saying here is that, that Christians should die to sin. Should die to sin. It's, it's, the doctrine is phrased now as an imperative, something you must do. Now, it's a good emphasis. It's a good emphasis for Christians not to sin. That is, that is good and proper. Okay? But it doesn't deal with what the text says. It doesn't deal with what Paul has said. And so the interpretation misses the mark. Paul doesn't say that it's something we are supposed to do. You are supposed to die to sin. He says it's something that has occurred. Do you see it? Look again. Be convinced now. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? It's something that has occurred, not something we are to do. And it is something, by the way, that has happened to us. It is something that has happened to us. Not something we did. So what does Paul mean? What does he mean when he says, verse 2, How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Well, let's look at it this way. Let's begin linguistically. Okay? We'll practice a little good hermeneutics, a little good Bible interpretation here. Okay? Let's start linguistically. The word death... Biblically, what it means, whether it's physical death, by the way, or spiritual death, is not extinction, but separation. Death means not extinction, but separation. It is separation of soul from body. That is physical death. It is the separation of the soul from God. That is spiritual death. It is never extinction. It is always separation. Okay? Secondly, grammatically, the expression here, died to sin, is in the dative case. In the dative case. And, and the grammarians tell us that typically, when it is in the dative case like this, it, it has the idea of disadvantage. Disadvantage. That is, that the, the believer has died to the disadvantage of sin or to the detriment of sin. Sin has lost something by our death. Okay? Just kind of hold on to these thoughts. Third, contextually, contextually, just looking at the wider context of what's going on here. Remembering now that uh, chapter divisions, you know, weren't in the original text, right? No chapter divisions, no verse numberings. Those come later for our benefit. You would read, be reading directly from chapter five right through chapter six. And so it's all connected together. You have a context here. And in chapter five, verses 12 through 21, Paul has sketched a very broad outline of two realms, two kingdoms, two reigns, two rules. Okay? One is called sin and death. And that one was founded by Adam. The other realm is righteousness and life, and that was founded by Christ. Do you remember this? Okay, so there is the realm of life or, or of sin and death in Adam. There is the, the realm of life and righteousness in Jesus Christ. And all people are belong to one or the other of those realms. You are a citizen of one or the other. And you reside in that realm because that is how God views you. That is how God sees you. That is how God views you. As participating in the deeds of the founder of either of those two realms. This was chapter 5, okay? If you can't remember this, you'll have to go back and, and, you know, pick it off the internet or whatever you need to do and listen again, okay? God views you as either in Adam and thus a member of the realm of sin and death, or He views you in Jesus Christ and a member of the realm of life and righteousness. And so. To move from one realm to the other is to be transferred from one kingdom to the other. And that necessarily involves a change of masters. 
When you move from one kingdom, one realm to the other, there is a change of masters. Isn't that right? We understand that on the physical plane. We're talking here on the spiritual plane. So you are in the realm of, of Adam. You are under the, the, um, the uh, rulership, the mastery of sin. If you are in the realm of Jesus Christ, you are under the rule or mastery of who? Christ. Okay. Let's pull it together now. You ready? We're going to pull it together. Therefore, sin or death to sin, verse 2, how shall we who have died to sin, is not that sin's pull on us becomes extinct. Okay? Because death is not extinction, right? Death is separation. So died to sin is there is a separation. It is a separation from the pull of sin. It is a separation from the pull of sin, from the mastery of sin. When we died to sin, date of case, sin was disadvantaged towards us in terms of its absolute rule and power over us. When we died to sin, sin was, was, uh, was disadvantaged. It was disadvantaged in the sense of its mastery over us. Because... We are now seen by God as belonging to the realm of Jesus Christ. We have moved from one realm to another. We don't belong to the old realm anymore. We belong to the new realm in Jesus Christ. The old realm is sin and death. The new realm is life and righteousness. Look at verse 18, same chapter. Paul speaks of this as a sort of a summary statement. He says, and having been freed from sin, you have become slaves of what? Righteousness, okay? So you've moved. You've been transplanted. You've changed citizenship. Here's the danger, though. The danger is that we bring into the new realm the impulses, habits, and tendencies of the old realm. That's what happens to us, okay? And they pose a constant threat to us in terms of our putting into actual practice the realities of our new citizenship. We've moved from this realm, this kingdom, this rule, to this one. But when we came, we drug a whole bunch of stuff with us. Okay? We brought a whole pile of crud with us into the new realm. And the danger is, we are citizens here, we are living here, but the danger is, is that this stuff is still affecting us. Still affecting us. And thus, Paul will instruct us to put it off. Okay, that's where we're going here. That's where this whole thing is going. How did we die to sin? Question. How did we die to sin? When did we die to sin? What are the implications of dying to sin? That leads us to our second truth. Right? Our second truth is you have been united with Christ, verses 3 through 5. I told you, I'm preaching to your head this morning. I can't help that. Okay, That's just the way Paul sets it up. Preaching to your head. So pay attention, hang on, Okay, process it, work at it. Here we go. You've been united to Christ, verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Okay, we have been united with Christ. Now, notice how Paul begins here in verse three. You see it? Or do you not know? That's an interesting way. To, uh, to carry on his argument here. He's appealing to something that they know or should know. Now, the church at Rome, I told you, he's not been there yet. In fact, no apostle has been there to teach this church. So it's not like they're really well instructed by apostolic teaching. But there is something that they know or should know that Paul can appeal to. And what is it that he's appealing to? Look at verse 3 again. Do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. He's appealing to their baptism. He is appealing 
to their baptism in support of his statement that they have died to sin. There is something about their baptism that supports this very profound theological idea. Something that Paul says they should know. They should know. Their baptism has symbolized something that directly impacts this discussion about having died to sin. Baptize, baptizo in the Greek. And this is what's called a transliterated word. It is not a translated word. That is, it has come directly from Greek into English. Okay? They've just changed the way the characters look. Okay? This is a Greek word. Baptizmo. The word means to immerse, to plunge, to drown, or to dip. Okay? Those are the basic general meanings of this word. It means to immerse, to plunge, to drown, or to drip. Or to not drip, but to dip. Not drip. Dip. Forget the R. That's one of those random R's that float around out there and attach themselves to words where they do not belong. Baptizo is used, by the way, in secular Greek of dying clothes. Okay? Dying clothes. That's the word used, baptizo. It's also used of washing dishes. Washing dishes. And it is used for making pickles. Okay? They are immersed into a solution of vinegar when you make pickles. Okay? They are baptized. Baptized. So the word conveys plunging in. Okay? Plunging in. That's what the word conveys. Now, there are a number of commentators here who think Paul is speaking about water baptism through this whole section. Uh, I don't think so. I think this is what I would call a dry verse, or at least verse 4 is a dry verse. Okay? Now, if you don't agree with that, that's fine. We'll get to basically the same place. Okay? I think it's dry, and I've got a few people on my side, so you know, there's some good company here that says it's dry. And I think what he's doing is he's, he's using their, their water baptism as a metaphor. He's using their water baptism as a metaphor to refer to the, to the believer's spiritual unity with Jesus Christ. That is, that the believer has been immersed in Christ. Galatians 3.27, For all of you who were baptized into Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. Okay? Immersed, plunged, dipped into Jesus Christ. Now, water baptism is God's ordained means of picturing our union with Jesus Christ. Okay? He has given it to us. Go into all the world and make disciples. Right? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? So, baptism is God's ordained picture for the spiritual reality of being plunged into Christ. And... Biblically, scripturally, when you work through the book of Acts, it comes almost immediately upon conversion. It is, it is, it is uh, um, to the apostles of the first century, it is essentially unknown, this idea of, of, uh, of becoming a Christian, following Jesus Christ, and then being baptized many, 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 many years later, or not even at all. Okay, that is foreign to the apostolic notion. For example, just to remind you, Acts chapter 8, verse 36, the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember? He professed faith in Jesus Christ and said, hey, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Bang. He's stuck under the water. Okay? The Philippian jailer, Acts 16, 33, he comes to faith. He washes Paul's wounds, demonstration of his repentance. He and his household are baptized. So the biblical motif is water baptism immediately following conversion. Or put very close together. But I think, in my judgment, it would be a mistake to understand Paul to be saying here that, that uh, water baptism was the moment that the believer was placed into Jesus Christ. Okay, That's why I think it's a dry verse. But having said that, we shouldn't miss the importance of water baptism. We shouldn't miss the importance. Or the ability of Paul to draw upon their water baptism as something, right? Or do you not know? And then use that to illustrate a very important spiritual point. If you've never been baptized, this argument falls on deaf ears. 
This argument only works if you have followed the Lord in baptism. And then Paul can refer to your baptism and say, now what you have done illustrates something far more profound. Let me show you what it is. I listened to Vincent's, I listened to everybody's sermon, but I listened to Vincent's sermon when he preached and he said he wasn't going to beg you to be baptized. I told him the other day, I said, I'm not above that. I'd beg. God commands you to be baptized. It's a step of obedience. There's just no way around it. It's a step of obedience. And it creates the perfect analogy, the God-given analogy, for the deeper reality of the union with Christ. It is a conversion. It is at the moment of conversion that the believer is immersed into Jesus Christ, into a spiritual union with Him. We become identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And that is graphically displayed in the waters of baptism. Somehow, somehow in the mind of God, at the moment of our conversion, we were transported back 2,000 years. Transported back at the moment we placed our saving faith in Jesus Christ and we were made to participate in the Savior's death, burial, and resurrection. Look at verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Paul says, Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. The older theologians Call this the mystical union with Christ. Okay, the mystical union. It is a spiritual union with Christ that has occurred in the mind of God. And beloved, if something occurs in the mind of God, is it real? You bet. There is nothing more real than what has occurred in the mind of the Creator. Okay? So don't pass this off as, as some sort of uh, weird thing you can't understand. This is the place where you believe what the Scripture has told you. You take it by faith. God has said this has happened to you. The moment you placed faith in Jesus Christ, you were transported somehow back there and you participated in that event. Verse 4. Verse 4 is structured as to... Uh, to take, a, take the form of a consequence, okay? It's a, it's a consequence drawn from verse 3, where Paul says we have been baptized into his death. Therefore, consequence. Since we were united with Christ in his death, we must therefore have been united with him in his burial. They go together. Paul's drawing this out, I think, for a twofold purpose here when he's talking about our burial with Christ. First, the burial of Christ emphasizes that he really died. Okay? That's part of the gospel, right? He died, he was buried, he, raised, he rose again the third day. Burial emphasizes his death. He really did die. And so, as we were buried with him, I think what Paul is emphasizing is, you really died too. Okay? Just as surely as physically he died and was buried, you spiritually have died, have been buried. There's a reality to it all. Secondly, burial sets the stage for what? Resurrection. The burial of Jesus Christ sets the stage for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all the glory that that displays. And so spiritually, it's the same way. It is the proof of our transference from one realm to the other. How do you know you moved from the realm of sin and death in Adam to the realm of life and righteousness in Jesus Christ? How do you know? You have been raised from the dead. You have been raised from the dead. That's how you know. The purpose, the purpose of our entering into union with Christ in His death, His burial, His resurrection is so that we might experience newness of life. You see that at the end of verse 4? So, early in the verse, it says, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so... We too might walk in newness of life purpose class. Okay? So that, so too. And this resurrection was brought about, it says, 
by the glorious power of God the Father. It was God the Father in the display of His omnipotence and glory that raised Christ from that tomb. Is that untrue? It is that same glorious, omnipotent power that has raised us spiritually to walk in newness of life. As a believer, it's, it's not enough to just characterize us as uh, dead to sin. That's only half the transaction. Okay? We are not just dead to sin. Now, that is fundamental to our union with Jesus Christ, but, but it goes beyond that. We are resurrected in Christ. That should fire you up. You should get pretty excited about that. Okay? That is newness of life, new life in Jesus Christ. Just as surely as Jesus rose from the dead, you have been raised to a new spiritual life because of your union with Christ. Newness of life. The word newness, kainotes in the Greek, it talks about a, a newness in terms of quality and character. Okay, a newness in terms of quality and character, not a newness in terms of time. Different Greek word for that. This is a newness in terms of our quality or character of life. You can see the same word, by the way, over in, uh, don't turn there, I'll just read it. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new, same word, creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Kind of. Okay? New in quality, new in character. This is an entirely different kind of life. And you should expect that. Because it's no longer life of sin and death. It's life in a realm of Life and righteousness. Okay, so it's entirely new in terms of its quality and character. Why? Why have we been raised for newness of life? So that we might display the holiness of God. Right? First Peter one sixteen, you shall be holy because why? I am holy. I am holy. We try to illustrate it for you this way. Orange trees. Orange trees produce oranges. Is that a true statement? Otherwise, we chop them down. Orange trees produce oranges, not as a byproduct, not as a token of their life, but as the purpose of their life. That is the purpose of an orange tree is to produce oranges. So Christians live in holiness not as a byproduct of the newness of life, but as the reason for the newness of life. You have been raised in Jesus Christ for a purpose. The purpose is that you will walk in holiness. A life characterized by a new quality. Paul goes on here. Confirm the same idea in verse 5. He said, For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. If the first part is true, then certainly the second part is true. The idea here is that the two events are inseparable. Just as it is absolutely absurd to think that Christ would have remained in the tomb, it is absolutely absurd to think that we who have died with Christ will remain under bondage to sin. We will be emancipated from our sin, from its bondage, from its dominance, from its power over us. This word united literally means grown together. We will grow together with Christ. Grow together with Him. Likeness points to a distinction. So we've got this going on here, okay? Verse 5. There is a closeness and there is a distinction here. We're talking by way of analogy. Our union in Christ's physical death and resurrection creates a union with Him, an intimacy with Him. But at the same time, it's a likeness. We can't, it's not like that we physically, that's what I'm trying to say, it's not like we physically went back there and physically died, physically were buried, physically rose again, okay? Spiritually it happened. Think of it this way. For a follower of Jesus Christ, your life is a two-volume biography. Okay? I like to read biographies. I really like them. My life is a two-volume biography. Your life, if you know Jesus Christ today, is a two-volume biography. Volume one opens with your life in Adam. 
and end with your judicial execution with Christ. That's the close of volume one. Volume two opens with your resurrection and your new life in Jesus Christ. And since you're still sitting here this morning and presumably breathing, volume two is still being written. Okay? But it opened with a resurrection. It's a good way to look at your life. Okay? The old has passed away. The new has come. Folks, right doctrine leads to right behavior. Okay? Right thinking leads to right actions. So I know we've been scraping the clouds here a little bit. Okay? But you've got you to get a hold of this. You've got to think about this. And don't worry, it continues to come up over and over again. So we'll be back to it. Okay? But this morning, just probably the best way to apply this message is just meditate on this reality. This, uh, this amazing reality. This liberating reality. That the power of sin, its grip upon your life has been broken. Its dominance over you has been broken. You have been raised to walk in newness of life. That is, if you have died to sin. If you are here this morning and you have not died to sin. That is, that you have not personally, privately, come before God and confessed your need of a Savior. Confess that you cannot achieve heaven on your own. That you are not good enough. Because the requirement is perfection and no one achieves perfection but God alone. You need a substitute. You need Christ. Your perfect substitute. If you will by faith embrace Him, the Scripture says you will have died to sin. I can't walk away from this without uh, also saying, if you've not been baptized, if you profess Christ as your Savior and you have yet to be baptized, don't wait. Don't wait. Come to the waters of baptism. Make the analogy true in your life so that Paul could say to you, don't you know what your baptism symbolized? If you want to talk more on these things, when we finish over by this lighted cross, there'll be some people. Okay? They'll be there to talk with you, pray with you. Through that door here, it says prayer room on the side. There's a private place to go and pray if you just want to go and pray yourself. Or if you want somebody to pray with you about something. If you have a spiritual need, we want to, we want to try to help you with that. So you come at the end of the service over there and there'll be people to meet you. Okay? We now have a living illustration. Uh, this morning we have a chance to hear a couple of testimonies as to how God has worked in their lives. And so I want to introduce you to Peter first. Um, this is again a, a new volume in their lives. And they want to testify this morning of God's grace in their lives and submit to water baptism. Hello, my name is Peter Rufinock. I was born in Minnesota and was raised there, but I now live in Arizona. As a child, I was raised as a Catholic, though I never considered myself to be a believer. It was just something I did because that was what my parents did. As a teen, I was not a Christian, but I studied the Bible a lot and tried to be a good person. I continued on this path of self-righteousness as an adult. Overall, I considered myself to be a pretty good person. Thankfully, there were workers to sow the seed of the word and to water it, but God caused growth. I had always known that I was a sinner, regardless of how hard I tried to be good, but I suddenly realized how bad a person I really was. In fact, the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As things stood, I was going to hell. I needed to be saved. This is all laid out in the Bible, but I had never seen it so clearly. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The more I thought about it, 
the more certain it was that I both needed and wanted Christ in my life. And that is why I am here. I have received Christ by faith and have been a believer for just over two months now. Life is much simpler as a believer. I don't have to worry about which set of rules I'm going to play by or who I'm trying to please. Now there is only one rule book and only one whose opinion I need worry about. I don't need to worry about the little things because I know that God is watching over me. For that matter, I don't need to concern myself with the big things, but it is hard to let go. It is hard to fully grasp that I have been counted as righteous through Jesus. I am still a sinner, and I now see more clearly than ever how terrible sin is. It is amazing that Jesus has taken those sins upon himself in order that I might be found righteous before God. The more I think about all that has been done for me, the more humbled and grateful I am. I don't deserve it. Because Jesus has taken those sins upon himself and interceded with the Father on my behalf, I can be certain that I am saved. I had always thought it presumptuous to say, I'm saved. But if I don't believe that, then I don't believe Jesus' repeated promises. If I don't think I'm saved, then I don't think his sacrifice is enough. That wouldn't leave me much. The purpose of Jesus' sacrifice was that I might be saved. I have embraced that sacrifice, so therefore I must believe that I am saved. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' final command to his apostles was that they should baptize new believers. I am a new believer, and I want to publicly profess my faith in Jesus and my obedience to him. I have ceased to be a slave of sin, and am now a slave of righteousness. Thank you. Well, Peter, based upon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ and your desire to follow in the waters of baptism and obedience here, I now pronounce you, and it is my joy to pronounce you, to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Folks, this is exciting stuff, isn't it? To see new believers coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We have Luke as well. And I've gotten to know Luke very well in the last few months. He's in the Aroikas group. And so it is a joy and a delight for me to baptize him as well. Or pronounce him, I should say. (laughs) Hi, my name is Luke Reed. This is my testimony in a desire to obey Christ and his word to be baptized. Peter said in Acts, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for for the forgiveness of your sins. Through this, I wish to give glory to Christ for saving me. My testimony is this. I grew up in the church in a loving Christian home. Before Christ saved me, I tried to have as much fun as I could, suppressing, suppressing my conscience and what I knew to be the only true source of joy, Christ. Though I tried to kill my conscience off to have guilt free sin, it never worked. My conscience rose in heavy self condemnation. In my senior year of high school, I could not suppress the truth much longer. I was scared of God's wrath. I knew I was a sinner, and I was scared of dying any moment to go to hell. I then tried very hard to clean my life up, but again and again, I kept on falling. I could not overcome my sin. I was hopeless. I realized that I was, at this time, a slave of sin and unable to change my heart's condition or be acceptable to God through action. Titus 3.15 says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. This mercy and regeneration came the summer before I came to college in Claremont. The Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin and I repented. These past two years have been a great internal struggle in determining the authenticity of my faith, but throughout it, several verses have helped. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 says, If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and, and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I realized that God had graciously ordained trials in my life so that he could show me the proof of the faith in Christ that he has given me. God has shown me more of the glorious reality of the cross in the believer's life. First Peter 3.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. I have come to understand that the Christ bearing, Christ bearing my sin has two meanings. Christ bore on the cross the fullness of God's wrath for my sin. 
He also bore my sins, as described in Leviticus, where the priests would lay their hands on goats and send them away to the wilderness. This illustrates the wondrous reality of Psalm 103.12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. No more sin can now keep me from the love of the Almighty God, for Christ has borne my sin completely for me. I can now rest in the righteousness of Christ, eternally imputed to my account. By Christ's one offering, he has completely and eternally perfected those whom he has called. During this short life, it is my desire to strive through the Spirit's power and dominion for righteousness, holiness, and Christ-likeness. Christ is now my loving, caring master and shepherd, and I am his slave, ever dependent on his grace to bring me to heaven. I wish to live my life according to this song. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow, no turning back, no turning back. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. And even though it be a cross that raiseth me, still all my song shall be nearer my God to thee. Through this baptism, I confess my sinfulness and give glory to Christ for causing me to die to my sin. May we together run this race, fixing our eyes always on Christ. In obedience to God's command, I wish to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Well, Luke, based upon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and your desire to follow through in obedience in the waters of baptism, it is my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We've heard a couple of great testimonies this morning about the former life before Christ and the life after Christ. And the waters of baptism express uh, externally what has taken place internally. God has given them a new heart and a desire to walk in obedience. And this is a sign or a symbol. You're not saved by being baptized um, in that sense. We don't believe in baptismal regeneration here. But we do believe that this is an outward sign of what God has already done. And so if you have not submitted to water baptism, I know David has already appealed to you this morning. I want to appeal to you again. Please follow in obedience your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God bless you.